A Thoughtful Faith Podcast is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. Welcome to A Thoughtful Faith Podcast. Uh, my name is Sarah Collette, and I'm here today joined by John Kessler. He is a practicing attorney, and also he has um, developed a meditative awareness practice called Integral Polarity Practice. I said that right. Okay, good. Um, he also is an active member of the church. He's been in, uh, a bishop and served on the high council and is currently active today. And um, he also is a social activist. And we're going to um, talk to him today about his life and about how he came to um, his meditative practices and, um, and especially in relationship to Mormonism and his faith in Mormonism. So I'm really excited, and I hope um, you will enjoy this interview, and welcome. Thank you, Sarah. Glad to be with you. Um, let's just start by um, going back and having you talk about your history with the church. I, you mentioned to me um, previously that you were a convert, so why don't you start kind of with that, with that experience and, and uh, give us an introduction to who you are. Okay. Well, through college, I would say that I was an agnostic. I uh, grew up attending an Episcopal church, but kind of drifted away from any active involvement. I had a good background in the Episcopal church till I was in my early teens. Um, but one has to kind of take a leap of faith at some point, which I decided to do, and so I became an atheist. And uh, you you leapt your leap of faith was, was in... from agnosticism to atheism. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And uh, you know, for several years, that was sort of my understanding and belief. I just decided that I'd believe what I learned in science class growing up, and what seemed to be uh, logical and postmodern, and all of those things. Um. And yet I had a, a real spiritual bent and and uh, was always searching and always reading. And um, in my mid-20s, I was going to law school in New York City, uh, living in Harlem. And uh, it turned out that the people I knew from Utah, I had grown up in Salt Lake City, were Mormons. And they conspired against me. And <laughs> as Mormons do, as Mormons do, and uh, so because my father's background was was within the church, I thought I knew everything about it and had walked away from it. And I liked Mormons, you know, and thought their beliefs were eccentric. Tell me your father's background a little bit. Uh, well, my father was the a grandson of Joseph F. Smith, 
his mother was uh, his oldest daughter and full sister to Joseph Fielding Smith. So that's quite a background. That's quite a background. <laughs> he was born in the Lion House. But he uh, you know, went on a, a long mission during the Depression, so they asked him to stay an extra year. So he was over three years in, wow. in Belgium, France. And, um, but at some point he, he kind of turned away from the church and left it behind. And my mother was from a immigrant family that was very hostile to the Mormons. And so I grew up in a, essentially a home that was very hostile. Despite your, your heritage, I know it's yeah. quite remarkable. It was interesting. We would go to the family reunions on my father's side and, and my family parents were so patronizing towards the Mormons and how <laughs> pathetic they were, but, <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, most of my friends growing up in Salt Lake City, about half and half, I guess. So I, I like Mormons, but I just felt that I, I just assumed reviewing from the outside that these were kind of sheep doing what, what some authority figure told them to do. And, you know, that was fine for them, but not anything I was interested in. And, you know, during high school, I was, by the time I got to high school, I was agnostic and through college was agnostic and finally said, well, a mature person eventually takes a leap of faith. So I just said, well, I'll just be frank about it. This is what I believe. And I, and I wasn't, uh, you know, anti-religion and I had a very, I was always reading philosophy and religion and Eastern and Western traditions and and um, I, after college, I uh, um, did a year of graduate work in political philosophy in Germany. So I had about a, a year of being alone in a room, and I decided to cast away every belief that I had to see if there was something down deep that I could find. And so it was a long process. Months and months went by, and it's been endless hours sort of meditating, trying to find what what was true, what wasn't. Everything seemed to fall away until I really did reach a, a, a sounding board, the very foundation of things after thousands of hours of, of just being alone in this room. And, uh, uh, you know, today I would say I, I actually was able to source the Spirit of Christ. I was able to sense that there was something deep within that was beyond my thought that was a source of a deeper truth. So that gave me a, a couple of years of, uh, of guidance, I guess you could say. But still, I was really desperately searching. Did you identify it as Christ at the time? Not, a, not at all. Okay. Uh, just as something, some deep spiritual sensibility. Okay. The problem, virtually every spiritual tradition and those outside of spiritual traditions had, had accessed. I, I knew I'd accessed something deep and profound and universal and I and I learned to be sensitive to it and it helped me learn how you know out of alignment a lot of my life was over time but it didn't stop me from behaving in strange ways either but I find that it's kind of remarkable that you yeah you were an atheist but then had the desire to meditate or to think in terms of spirituality and want to crave belief. So do you, looking back, do you think that you really were atheist or 
I mean, there's kind of discrepancy there. Well, yeah. I mean, there is. Other than I just didn't... Uh, my atheism was a, there was sort of some deity up in heaven who was out there looking down on us. But, you know, maybe there was some deep universal source of connection or understanding. Okay. And uh, so it wasn't deity-oriented at all. It was sort of more... Is there some, And I guess we could call it some spiritual foundation there. Right. So you were looking for more of a spiritual awakening, yeah. not necessarily a connection to God. Yeah. Okay. But And also it began as a um, an exploration of what my beliefs were of all sorts and why I had them. So it was this deep, deep deconstruction process. And so I really went through a process of uh, losing any sense of context or environment is everything just sort of drifted away and I was sort of falling into this bottomless pit. I mean, I couldn't eat all my, I mean, I became, that's when I became bald. My hair hair fell (laughs) fell out, you know, for a period of time, I think I actually lost my, my mind. And, uh, it was in that depth of extremity that I actually finally connected with something. Wow. So, um, from there to Mormonism, how did that come about? Well, I I did a little time in the military. Uh, it was during the Vietnam War, and I was in the National Guard, did some active duty there. And then I went and worked in Washington, D.C. for a congressman, and that was kind of a break from all of that. But by the end of that time, which was, you know, didn't last more than just a few years, I just realized that there was something enormous that was there for me to find, and I didn't know what it was. And so when I went to, then I went to law school in New York City and spent most of my time, you know, reading Nietzsche and all sorts of things rather than really going to law school and studying. And in the midst of that, you know, some some of my Mormon friends ganged up on me and invited me over to dinner and had the missionaries come. And I just was so offended. And I didn't know whether to just kind of walk out and, and say how disappointed I was in them. Or it did occur to me that, well, I don't want to ruin their evening. And, you know, I think I know everything there is to know that's important about Mormonism, but it may be a, another cultural refinement lesson for me just to just to learn. And, you know, the bishop was a friend of mine. He was he just graduated from the same law school. And, and I said, you know, what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have to put them on trial. They're going to put me on trial in terms of their faith. So I said, I'm going to asked them to put their faith on the line if they want me to put my faith on the line. He was so upset with me that I would do that. Because, <laughs> you know, because I knew, you know, having grown up around Mormons, I knew how to back people into corners and whatnot. You know, but the really disgusting thing that the missionaries did when I backed them into a corner and they had no answers, they'd bear their testimony. I just considered that to be absolutely cheating. <laughs> Intellectually cheating. (laughs) (laughs) And yet it did have an impact on me. And it took me about a year to go through my own process and took quite a dramatic experience to actually turn that corner. I finally did. So you had a profound spiritual experience that encouraged your conversion. It did. Okay. Do you, um, looking back, do you... When you took the missionary discussions and when you heard their testimonies, did you believe then when you converted everything about Mormonism? I really didn't. I mean, I had uh, 
a number of fairly basic things that I assumed couldn't really be true or accurate. Uh, but the, the spiritual experience, the conversionary experience I had was so powerful that um, it took me about two weeks to absorb that and to acknowledge it and to admit it. But I finally said, you know, I just have to accept these on faith because I just have such a profound experience that I, that I, I'm, I'm going to accept this. So the experience made you feel as though you needed to enter the waters of baptism. We that's, would say. that's true. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. Plus, I mean, part of the part of the missionary challenge along the way was, well, change your behavior in this way and see what fruits come out of that. And I had to admit that living in accordance with the principles of the of the restored gospel were, you know, really helpful to me personally, really helped me become healthier emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. So as you entered, uh, first of all, how did your family react when you became a member of the church? Were, were your parents alive? Did they respond? Well, what I learned was <clears throat> my father never completely lost his testimony. He just let it go, become passive, had become more of a a doubter of the leadership of the church and whatnot. But it was just a it was just for my sister and my mother, it was just a disaster. Uh they were really upset with you. Yeah. I mean, the, and then the worst thing that ever happened in their lives is when I became a bishop. I mean, it was just, you know, how could I do this? Really? Uh, so it know. lasted for a long time. Oh, it lasted for a long time, yeah. I mean, in, in, in Salt Lake City, there's a very well-established non-Mormon, anti-Mormon community, and you are reinforced your whole life to view people who, particularly those who convert, as just pathetic Really and sad. Huh, I that didn't they, know that. could possibly be so deluded. And so it was from that perspective that they said, oh, we've lost our son, you know. That is really interesting because Mormon people tend to feel the exact same way about right. people who <laughs> their sons who yeah. leave. So that's an interesting conflict uh, yeah. that, to express that. So um, in terms of Christ... How much was Christ a part of your conversion to Mormonism? Did you acknowledge, um, you know, like was Christianity something that you were experiencing and seeking, or did that come later? Well, you know, all I, although I grew up going to the Episcopal Church, um, I didn't really develop an in-depth sensibility about Christ until I started studying the church and understood Christ through the lens of of the restored gospel and um and I I really bought I really bought into those teachings and uh who he was uh, I had a hard time believing it literally you mean in the divine Christ? In the, in, the, in the divine Christ and in the atonement in terms of what it says literally cl- claimed. So, I mean, those are pretty big deals If in terms of converting if you're not sure about that. And yet um, I decided to accept that on faith. And, you know, because I ha- had enough confirmation 
that this is just simply what I was supposed to do, that I went ahead and got baptized. Did that faith come from, Did it? was it born of the spiritual experience you had, or do you feel like you've kind of always been someone, I mean, you talk about a leap of faith to atheism, so you must have had an understanding of the principle of faith. Yeah, I... Uh... I think where I was coming from is kind of William James philosophy, pragmatism. You do what works. You you do what bears fruit. And whether you understand it or not, if it works, at some at some point everything's just a concept, uh, was my thinking. And whatever you literally think is maybe less important than what actually works and what bears fruit. And all I could tell was that spiritually it bore fruit, bore fruit in the fullness of my life. And so even even if it wasn't literally true, whatever that means, it it wasn't it wasn't um a prohibition to for, for making that commitment and and uh, taking that leap of faith. That I find to be so remarkable. I love that idea. I think that um Ultimately, that is the place that people have to come to who experience great doubt and, um, and questioning is they have to just decide to live according to what is effective and makes them happy and, yeah, and bears fruit. That, that's a wonderful way to view it. You know, there are other things, though. I mean, such it was during the time when, when uh, blacks could not hold the priesthood, and uh, I was just convinced that that couldn't be a divine principle. So there were things that, I, that you know, were very concerning to me, and yet in spite of some of those doubts, I thought, well, maybe that will resolve itself, and maybe other things will resolve themselves. And But nevertheless, I just have such a powerful spiritual witness that this is what I'm supposed to do, that I did it. So um, you mentioned earlier also that you had a meeting with your great-uncle, would talk a little bit about that experience and how that fits into the story. Well, it was it was really remarkable. I I never knew if if I would ever really meet him. I never had met him. You know, you could sort of go to Smith family reunions. Tell tell who your great uncle is. Oh, uh, <laughs> Joseph Fielding Smith. That's right. And he's president of the of the church at the time. <laughs> and uh, so, an aunt of mine, after I had been baptized, said, "I bet you'd like to meet your uncle." He says he's aware. Well, and I had actually written him a letter when I'd had this experience and I decided to join the church, but I never heard back from him. But then I had an aunt approach me and say, well, he knows what's going on here. And this was just, uh, he was very uh, uh, elderly and not well. And uh, But still, he, I was invited to go to his home and, and have a visit. And I was sort of frank about it. I said, I just joined the church. But uh, there are a number of things that I'm just not sure about. Uh, what's your advice? And it was pretty remarkable. It was a, during, you know, he had this image of this stern, doctrinaire, almost fundamentalist approach to things. And, uh, you know, he looked at me and he says, well, if, if you just decide to, uh, you know, follow God humbly and do your best to follow his guidance in the Spirit— and do the best that you can and live by faith, that he will help you understand that his truths in his time in, in a way that's appropriate for you. And he did. 
so it was uh, it was really remarkable because part of this this spiritual experience was to tell me that I should write a letter to my uncle and I'd see him before he, um, he died. And he died the next day. So um, so it was a fulfillment of yeah, personal it a, prophecy. It was a fulfillment of personal prophecy. And he, what he said to me was the perfect thing that I needed. So you've lived by that, I assume, throughout your life? Well, I tried. I haven't been perfect, but it, it was a, you know, important counsel to me from a uncle and a prophet. Uh, from there, I assume you you married and you began to live a normal Mormon lifestyle. Is that right? I did. Yeah, jumped jumped right in. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, the next question then is where you are today, you've, you've got this meditative practice, which isn't necessarily a normal Mormon lifestyle. So let's, let's kind of focus on, um, you know, how did you discover, um, the meditative practices that you, that you now have adopted and live by? Well, I, you know, I hadn't had much of a meditative practice since I joined the church. The interesting thing was, is finding this deep spiritual Source was a after a year of deep meditation. In a way, did you recognize that it was meditation? Or I didn't think about it that way. I just thought there was something down deep inside to find. Uh, um, but being an attorney, I have to get continuing education credit. So I went to a workshop on mediation, not meditation. This was about fifteen years ago, and. Um, uh, this quite famous Zen master who was residing at the time in Salt Lake City had come up with this radical new approach of facilitating people into very deep, transcendent states just in a really short period of time. And uh, a student of his had organized this meditation or mediation conference and thought this would be a perfect opportunity for him to try it out on some people just off the street in a way. And the justification was that if you are totally identified with everything, uh, what better place could a mediator be than to be completely connected and identifying fully with, with everyone? And so there was an hour and a half breakout session. I w wandered into it. I mean, I, you know, I'd read a lot of Zen books and things in years past and, and, uh, just had this huge experience, uh, of oneness that I'd never had before. And it was a spiritual experience, but distinct from anything I'd experienced in, you know, through the church or previously. So he facilitated. He facilitated okay. that. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, so I contacted him and said, I'm not really interested in becoming a Buddhist, but I, this was just such a powerful experience. And he was delighted because he thought this new facilitation technique uh, was a, a window or a door through which people from all traditions or no tradition could find this this oneness experience, this transcendent nirvanic kind of experience. And uh, he said, that's great. I'd love to have a non-Buddhist student because I'd love to share this with, with the non-Buddhist world. And um, How old were you at this point, if do you mind telling us? Uh, well, let's see. I was uh, maybe 55. Oh, okay. 
okay. So this is you were older and you're yeah, uh huh. And so kind, you know, I, I think maybe fifty-ish, fifty-ish. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Keep going. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, so he thought that it was so simple to do and had such a huge impact that just within a few years there would be hundreds of people who could share this process and would start changing the world, but. What he didn't realize at the time was he could do it so easily because of who he was and where he was coming from in terms of consciousness and, you know, 30 years of being a Zen master and that kind of thing. So what was easy for him was <laughs> difficult for others. Yeah. So he was training people all over the world. And and in Salt Lake City, he had people coming from all over the world. And, and I was very part-time, but I hung in there. And about four years after he... Uh, had found this process, he'd only been able to kind of certify or give transmission to four people to share it with others. Two of them were abbots of Zen monasteries. Another was a woman monk who was just becoming a Zen teacher herself and my and me. A so Mormon. I, a Mormon. <laughs> <laughs> and so they'd kind of call me the Mormon Buddha and laugh, you know, just say, well, who is this freak? <laughs> So, you know, my Mormon friends would say, what are you doing? And my, the, all the Buddhists would say, well, who are you? <laughs> but anyway, I had, I, I had this uh, talent, I guess, or uh, ability to do that. And so I, uh, I sh uh, continued to be trained in it, shared it. And over time, um, felt that given my Mormon lenses and my sense of things that I needed to, to sort of modify what I had been taught, and I kind of walked a little bit away from the Zen tradition. Because, I mean, the primary reason was that I found that it's all about this ultimate experience. But it's not about how you become a... learn rules and become a moral human being and learn how to be a family member and a community member. It was just missing all of that human dimension. So you'd find these incredibly profound, deep teachers who would make these terrible life choices and life decisions and would act sometimes very immorally or, you know, really almost borderline mentally ill. Uh, and I thought, okay, this is a beautiful tradition in terms of an experience that it shares, but it's, it's not based on um, the foundations that you have to build as a fully developed human being. So that was very helpful for me to see that. It's so surprising to me to see it, but I, I can just tell you, I could tell you lots of stories. That is so surprising. Well, give us an example without naming names of, because um, I think we think that once you have reached some level of transcendent <clears throat> spiritual experience, that that uh -huh. kind of correlates to a peaceful, happy life. <laughs> yeah, you would think. So, uh, uh, so there's this one very senior Zen teacher. I mean, I could tell almost the same story about several. Uh, getting to know him personally and helping him with some practical things. I'm an attorney. I would find that if somebody crossed him, he'd want revenge, and he'd look for ways to get revenge. I mean, just really primitive behavior. And, uh, you know, how he uh, stepped out on his wife and had affairs. And I thought, you know, you know something's really off here. There's There's a distinction between having... A, a deep, profound experience of oneness and being able to translate that into being a decent human being and having that flow through a balanced um, 
mature moral range of human sensibility. And, it's, and the difference between that of who the Savior was and what the model of the Savior was, what we're called to model, and that example was just night and day. However, the deep unity experience is some of the deepest place that you can go spiritually. So that's a, a So the a big, spiritual a big, experience is still authentic in, in terms of... That's right. That is such an interesting... And that's why I became... One of the reasons I became really interested in developmental psychology and what the developmental psychologists will tell you is whatever experience you have spiritually still is translated through your level and your level of development and the balance that you have or don't have as a human being. And so you can have a, a deep spiritual experience it might change your life, but nevertheless, you'll still act out on it and even understand it in terms of your 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 level of development. And so uh, understanding that developmental sensibility was an important aspect of the practice that I developed. And the other major aspect of that practice is part of the big mind process is bringing in Jungian-based voice dialogue where you speak to aspects of the self. He had learned, this Genpo Roshi, this teacher, had learned that you can speak to transcendent voices, aspects, as well as, you know, like the vulnerable child or or, or the voice of fear or something like that. And uh, so I got a group together to explore, let's speak to aspects of the self that relate to different developmental, emergent developmental levels of the developmental psychologists so that we could create a framework for this and understand what the developmental framework was for uh, uh, accessing aspects of ourself and finding the spiritual centeredness of every aspect of ourself. And it turned out that when you facilitated people, I found that if we had a really profound archetypal primary voice that came out, sooner or later, its opposite would speak up and want to be heard too as sort of a rival of the of the voice that is spoken. And it wasn't uh, voices of good and evil. It was like if the voice of, uh, uh, of desire spoke, the voice of aversion would want to speak. And neither one is good or bad in themselves, but they're, but they're, but they're poles, but then come to find out that they're deeply interpenetrating, and ultimately, if you can hold them as one, they're different aspects of the same thing. If you get totally stuck in desire, you're addicted. If you get totally stuck in aversion, you've got some some version of anorexia. The point is, is it's a all of these primary aspects are there to be of service to you as a human being, and to become well integrated, have access to them not have shadow, that means that you actually know what's there, and to become spiritual-centered through the whole spectrum of your being, uh, grounded in um, the developmental perspectives that developmental psychology and developmental science have spelled out, gives us an opportunity to have a much richer possibility for awareness and integration and that kind of thing. So let me just um, speak back to you so that I, I want to make sure this is all kind of new to me. So I want to make sure that I'm understanding what you're saying. So what you've done is you've taken these meditative practices and you've, you've also taken developmental psychology and you've looked at how people are kind of segmented and divided into all of these different 
opposites, uh-huh. like, um, uh-huh. you know, opposites. And then yeah. you use meditation to access all of those different parts. And meditation and facilitation. I can bring that out. You can learn to self-facilitate to get uh, in contact with different aspects of yourself. So give me an idea of what facilitation requires. Um, well, usually I use this voice dialogue, which I learned through this big mind process. So I'd, I'd say, I'd like to speak to the voice of desire, please. And so then I'd ask, ask you to speak from that voice and then we'd have a chat and I'd ask to speak from a version. And one of the other discoveries I found out was there was always another voice, which was the still point. It brought those two active dynamics, those poles, if they were held together, there was a place that would bring that that polar tension to a still point. And that's whenever you talk to the still point voice, it's it's they sound very similar. They're they're out of space, they're out of time, they're very open, there's no ego there. And so the and so the uh, still point for uh, desire and aversion is is complete contentment. And if you talk to complete contentment and you can come from that place rather than a place of deficit, it can be can really change. And one of the one of the further developments that I did about five years ago was as a Latter-day Saint, we're not just about communing uh, uh, with the divine. We're all about from that place going out in, into the world and doing things. And becoming, becoming like the Savior, and then doing out of that becomingness. And so I found that there was a virtue of doing and becoming that would arise if you were deeply connected to that deep space of contentment. So desire and aversion, if you're connected with those, you come out of, I need this, I'm afraid of that. It's a place of deficit. But if you come out of a place of contentment, all of a sudden you have an attitude of being grateful. And if you're content and you're grateful, you're more generous. And so those are virtues that flow out of the non-egoic spiritual center of that particular uh, that particular polarity. And so the basic polarities that I developed, the virtues that flow out of them are basically all the Christian virtues. So let's take a step back for a minute and go back to um, that time of your life between your conversion and before you walked into that um, mediation uh, conference. Um, so you were living your Christianity or your religion during that time. Do you feel that you, by the time that you had really discovered that meditative practice, you had also discovered Christ? In terms of discovering Christ, I mean, I think that I think that joining the church and having faith in Christ was was discovering Christ. It's not. It's just simply not knowing exactly who He was, and um, uh, so I got to the point fairly rapidly that I could answer the Temple Recommend questions in, in good faith. And uh, but at the same time, you know, what's literally true? Who is Christ literally? Um, I, you know, I still don't feel like I have any in, complete intellectual grasp of that. But all I know is that that faith works and and it bears fruit. And I feel like I I even in my uh, you know I just have to pray to Him to help my unbelief because I do through faith and and through a des- testimony that's deeper than my thought. 
I, I, I have that deep testimony that, that I've discovered him and found him, and he's my personal Savior. So how did this, the meditative practice now, how did that correlate with your Christianity? Did it increase your faith? Did it, I mean, you know, talk about the relationship between your faith in Christ and your meditation. Well, it was it was unsettling in a sense in that this um, uh, this unity consciousness that's characteristic of the Eastern traditions is not a modality of spirituality that I found taught in the restored gospel. Uh, uh, I think people experience it and probably just don't know how to frame it. Uh, because it just naturally happens to people at some points. but Why is that? Why? Because we don't have training? Because we're not looking? I mean, what what about our spiritual practices? Because this is one of the things that um, I was telling you my husband and I have been really interested in is that we have developed habit of prayer, um, you know, temple attendance, these things that would seem to constantly seek this divine transcendent type of experience uh-huh. but it's really difficult to actually achieve it and I, I mean we have some kind of language for it in the church you know that we're that we're seeking to feel the spirit i think that's always what we're yeah. looking for right but it's hard and i think a lot of us have had t- discussions where you know how do you feel that all the yeah. time so well and i think there are um hugely spiritual experiences that feel of the Spirit and where you receive guidance of the Spirit that just don't happen to have those non-dual qualities. Uh, Talk so, about non-dual a little bit so, so we and, understand. And so the way to describe it is um, uh, most of our sense of Spirit in all of the Western traditions is there's a somethingness there. You can feel something. A lot of the Eastern traditions talk about an emptiness. There's sort of a nothingness there. And um, the ultimate non-dual experience is to be able to hold both the somethingness and the nothingness together as one. And we're so oriented in the West to the somethingness, which is the, you know, the fullness of spiritual experience uh, in that the Spirit is there. We can feel the Spirit. We can be guided by the Spirit. But to actually be trained to hold the emptiness, the, the, the Zen tradition and some of the other Buddhists and other traditions talk about, um, uh, to be able to experience that emptiness and then to be able to hold the fullness and the emptiness together is, um, is, a, unique ex- is a unique experience. Can you describe what it feels like? It, um, it <laughs> I know that's kind of hard, but... Yeah, it it feels it feels like uh, you are so far beyond concepts, or being able even to describe what it is, that it's sort of the it's sort of this source place, is sort of a place of uh, complete uh, lack of tension or. Um, Ironically, it's a place of complete peacefulness, which contains all the lack of peace in the world, because you are everything. You are, you are the 
the American soldier fighting terrorists and you are the terrorists and you just hold all of that and you hold all of that and you hold nothing. And by, by being all of those things and nothing and holding that all at once, it's just a, it's just beyond description. It's a place of complete oneness and emptiness and fullness all at the same time. That's really quite remarkable and quite profound. And it's, it's not to say that the qualities of spiritual experiences that we do have in the church and in all sorts of other traditions aren't authentic and wonderful and powerful. But this is, uh, the people who study the traditions would say this is sort of the, the deepest state, you might call it, because it holds everything, both the fullness and the emptiness. There's a virtual war between Buddhism and the Vedantic or Hindu tradition. Uh, the Hindu tradition tends to be about somethingness, and the Buddhist tradition tends to be about nothingness. But it's only when you realize that that war is absurd and holding them both is a, even a more profound, deeper place. So, uh, yeah, that's that's what that big mind process is. That's why, for some strange reason, I was facilitated into it so deeply just that very first time. I wrote a letter to this Zen Roshi and said, I was first writing a letter to say I, I want to be a student or learn this. And, and it turned, and I was so deeply in this place, it turned into kind of a Zen poem. And it went on page after page after page. And he said when he got it, he called all of his people together because this lawyer who'd wandered into this breakout session just wrote this Zen poem. And he told, I don't know if this is true, but he told me they wept because they had never expected somebody just off the street to experience this profound place and to actually have a letter turn into a Zen poem that had this profound realization related to it. Um, so why do I na just naturally fell into that place? And of all these hundreds of students, why um, maybe thousands of students, why was I one of four that was sort of certified? I have no idea, but it was a, it was a gift, and so I try to share that gift. When you recognize, you mentioned that it was rare to actually see people within the Mormon tradition who've who've kind of understood this, you know, this wholeness or this somethingness and this nothingness. Um, are they similar sometimes? I mean, can do they have similar characteristics or habits? Or do they kind of reach this, you know, place just, I mean, what 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 is the common thread between the, the rare people that do get to that place without the actual training and meditative practices? Well, um, it tends to be just an event that people remember. You know, I remember three and a half years ago on June 13th, I had this experience. And if somebody can talk about that and I can listen to it, I can, I can know that that's what it was. But you, for most people, it will just be a rare occasional experience um, unless there's a practice to support it. And, and, that's so and that's sort of what the Zen tradition does. It focuses on that particular experience. So they, they encounter it almost by accident. Encounter it almost by accident, yeah. But I do think uh, for some people in their very deepest spiritual experiences, it, it, they, they might have a non-dual experience. In terms of um, your relationship to the church, what has been, have you been received well by church members or by even by leaders in terms of 
um, the direction that your life has taken with meditation? Well, when I felt I was ready, which was after about 10 years, to start sharing this with church members as I developed my own practice, which was my own Mormon practice in my mind, it was it was my practice and part of my Mormon life, uh, I, I started to share meditation for Mormons for a couple of years and would just very gently introduce it. And it was only at the back end that I would ever bring up the non-dual because it was such a radical place as people were so unfamiliar with it. Uh, and after a while, I think maybe it's partially by inspiration and partially by a little bit of feedback, but be careful about trying to suggest that there's a better or deeper way to practice the restored gospel or a better way to practice Mormonism. And I said, well, yeah, I don't, I'm not trying to second guess anybody. And so I actually stopped doing that. I, I don't do that anymore. I share my practice as a generic practice, but I just say it's based most more fundamentally than anything else on my uh, Mormon sensibilities, but it includes this non-dual training too. So talk about um, now your social activism and how what that is and how you came to those you know to that point of your life and then let's talk about how they how they marry. Well, um, I mean, I've just been always very interested in community engagement and politics without. Going into politics, I, I worked for a congressman for a while and at the White House for a while when I was in Washington, D.C., and thought, I don't think this is for me. I think I want to be more local, but maybe by being more local, ultimately, you can be more global. And um, I ended up, just by hook or by crook, being asked to be a head of a, a national healthy community organization Healthy communities is sort of a holistic understanding of the intimate interconnection of the well-being of the individual, uh, the community, and the environment. And um, I started writing some articles uh, about that. And um, right at that time, and this was just a little bit before I ran into the Zen thing, uh, there was a, 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 a thing called the Integral Institute that was being founded to pick up people in various disciplines who are reflecting kind of an integral awareness, which is sort of, uh, you know, there's modernism and postmodernism. There's a couple of levels, and they all are characteristic of where, the way you're processing reality, and they're all part of developmental psychology. And I was contacted with regard to some articles that I was writing that you really should be part of our politics group. And so I became part of this think tank called the Integral Institute, and um, that helped focus me on just as I, just even the same as my meditative approach was developmental, my understanding became developmental in terms of uh, how people relate to one another socially and in societal settings. And so um, uh, I I founded an organization called the Salt Lake Center for Engaging Community, and we do trainings and we, we mentor communities on how to be more flourishing communities. But there's always a developmental aspect to it. I've been doing a two-year civility initiative called Utah Civility and Community, where the Utah lieutenant governor and the Salt Lake City mayor are the co-chairs, and we have a 40-person advisory committee. But it's based on this first comment that if you feel the need to demonize people who are different than yourself, you're either a child or an immature adult. So a lot of this is 
lot of our political problems we're having in America. It's, it's their developmental problems. And I try to, in very practical ways, uh, help bring people together. Like I have seven levels of civility or, or civil reciprocity. Each one reflects a, a higher processing way of being together with people. Each one is more inclusive, less confrontational, has higher level outcomes. And so I just look for opportunities, um, you know, in a consensus way as I can. Uh, and I'm pretty successful bringing liberals and conservatives and radicals, everybody together, you know, to work on issues. So you get them all together in the same room, or how do you do this? Well, I mean, it just depends. It just depends what the issue is. I've been working for years on, uh, for instance, on the reality that, you know, about 50% of the health care dollar is uh, spent on treatment for illnesses that are otherwise preventable if people change their behavior. And you could just save hundreds of billions of dollars if you could find effective ways to uh, uh, support people in becoming more responsible. Wellness self-management is the term of art. So we're having a big summit with all the stakeholders in about a month. Uh, everybody's involved. Uh, you know, we've got national people coming in because they say, well, you know, why hasn't anybody thought of this? Uh, the point is this, the science is there and the capacity is there and you can reach things on a certain level that's no longer ideological. Yes, there are problems to be solved. And by getting everybody together and knowing how to do that, uh, you can begin to make a difference. So I just sort of pick my places to work on and try to create a, a pattern of behavior in a, in a developmental framework and hopefully that sets a pattern that can be then spread can you give us an example of one of these issues? Uh, well, I mean, <clears throat> I kind of helped pioneer this when I was when I was uh, running the the National Healthy Community Organization and put together a network of uh, healthy community groups all over the world, and it was called a, a global action network. And so, what people discovered in the last ten years. And I think it's because of the development of consciousness, people realize that they have to work with people who are different than themselves. Is An example is usually these networks are kind of topic-centered. And so in the Pacific Northwest, all of a sudden, people who are sports fishermen and commercial fishermen and business people and environmentalists, they all started getting together to say, how can we optimize everything to preserve the fisheries of the Northwest? whatever your lens was. And then they learned that a, a group was doing a similar thing in the North Atlantic by Europe, and a similar group was going, you know, in the, in the Pacific. And they learned that they could, they could process, they could learn from one another, and they created a, a global network. And so <clears throat> about seven years ago, there was, a, there was a founding of a network of global action networks, and there were about 20 of them had, that had become self-aware I kind of came in as a senior consultant and kind of helped say this is this is how you do it. It's important to have a a trusted neutral convener that nobody is suspicious of that has a sensibility of being able to connect with everybody. One of the really counterintuitive developmental perspectives is that when you're able to see people by the way they process reality, you can kind of see what level they're processing on rather than 
patronizing people who are processing at a lower level or coming from a deep, uh, a lower need level, such as I'm trying to survive. It's I don't care about all this environmental stuff. I don't have enough food to eat. Is to is to instinctively know how to connect with everybody and weave them together in ways that they can't weave themselves together. And um, so that's sort of a, a science and an art and something I'm working on and something I try to work with community groups or whatever. So let me um, mirror back to you how I'm understanding this, and you can see, tell me if I'm on the right track here. So you would take, for example, a fisherman and a uh, environmentalist, and they, they they have similar interests. They want the fish the fish to be there. Right, they want the fish to be there. <laughs> right, from very different motivations. Right, and they're yeah. and they're they have totally different ideas and probably very strong opinions of one another. Uh-huh. And you teach them how to come together and speak to one another and work together for a common purpose. Right. Okay. Yeah. And, and you're doing this in on and in, in many different areas and well, fields. I mean, I'm I make my living as an attorney, so with what time I have. I try to do that work. I try to do my meditative work. But it's very clear at a particular level of development, people will inevitably begin to experience who they are becoming with what they are doing. You know, identify with this Gandhian comment that, you know, be the change that you want to see in the world. But until you reach that point, you see them as two different realms. And so I've got to become more effective of how to bring people, even be willing to come to the same room to hear both sides of the sides of the story, because to me that's ultimately, and it really is the message of Christ, and, and it's and you really hear more um, general authorities talking about that. Elder Oaks or Elder Bednar are more and more, for instance, uh, talking about what we do is not because there's a bunch of checklists; it's because we're becoming more like the Savior, because we are that kind of a person. We naturally start doing these things. And it's a, it's a process of, of, it's because who we are and the fruits of who we are is what we do. And to understand it on that level is tough to actually experience it that way, but it's, it's an important teaching. Yeah. And that kind of sometimes is anti-intuitive because we um, maybe identify who we are, you know, we know what our thoughts are and what our intentions are, but, um, but if we're not actually acting, you know, in accordance with who we want to be, then, yeah, then we're not really that person. Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah. But by but by practicing it and doing it, it helps stretch you into being it. But also by getting into a meditative and a spiritual place and becoming centered helps you then do. You know, they're, mu- they're mutually interrelating. And to realize that they are, they're mutually interpenetrating, helps create a growth dynamic that's really that's really pretty exciting so in terms of mormonism i know that um one of the things that a thoughtful faith we're really trying to figure out is how to um yeah get get these two groups of people to communicate and talk to one another being those two groups being um people who have not experienced conflict in their belief system or in their faith um, they haven't gone through, you know, some some sort of cognitive dissonance and conflict there, um, and so they're they have a certain language, you know. They think in terms of um, 
those that sin leave or, you know, people who are in apostasy or they think in terms of um, the those people who have fallen. And then there's the other people who have experienced the cognitive dissonance and the conflict and the doubt and all of that. And they feel as though that other group has not, cannot understand them and doesn't understand what it's like to really have to act out of faith because they haven't gone through that conflict. So they're speaking these two different languages. So what you're talking about here actually could be so valuable and helpful. One reason is to help facilitate the continual positive association with the church for those that are struggling and, or, or have just come to different, you know, a different place in terms of their faith and, and to help the group that struggles with those that leave to understand and conceive that, that they can all kind of be a part of the same church. So this is perfect for that. Go ahead. And what do you have to say about that? I'm, I'm so interested. <laughs> well, I mean, one thing that I would say is, um, you'll, ha- you'll have a particular narrative in a culture, which is tied to a particular level of development and the, um, Medium level of development and the narrative we have is in the Mormon church is not that high. To some extent, it's a reflection of who we are as a people. Uh, I, the restored gospel, by virtue of becoming more like the Savior and being open to the fullness of human development, uh, means that uh, we're completely open to that. And I think over time, we are uh, experiencing that. But nevertheless, as people move into postmodernism, say, for instance, and beyond in terms of how they're processing reality and the questions they have, people in the old narrative don't get it. They can't see it, partially because the, that's where the narrative is, partially that that's sort of where they are developmentally, perhaps. And so part of the artfulness of it is to sort of create bridges by recognizing that reality. Um, so give me an idea. I, I, I mean... I need an example of this limitation. Well, one thing I've learned, because I had a wonderful opportunity to, to teach gospel principles for about four years uh, with people who were just trying to learn the gospel, but a lot of people started to come. I mean, it became a really large class. I mean, it was interesting. The bishoprics t- showed up and said, now, what is going on here? And then the stake presidency showed up and... But what I learned is there are ways to translate. You just have to understand where people are and that there's a way to describe things in the context of our faith and our understanding and our doctrine and our narrative that can open up doors. So I'm just, you know, I'm just a beginner and I'm an, I'm an explorer. I'm an explorer in that regard, but uh, uh, I have more than faith now that that can work and you can make progress in those ways. So I do that kind of work and there's quite, you know, I always have four or five or six people in their 20s or early 30s that are exploring and wondering if they should leave. And I try to just talk to them and encourage them to stay involved or or not, not, uh, I mean, if they elect to leave or become permanently inactive or something, that's certainly their choice. But I always try to open up the, the fruits of the gospel even though they've been cut off from a capacity to communicate well with people that they ideally 
Sure. So give me, and I, you were talking about the narrative is limited a lot of times for, um, for LDS people. And, and then they kind of move into a new way of thinking, a postmodern way of thinking. But give me an actual example of a principle or a narrative that is limiting and then how they move past that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like when you've taught yeah. in your gospel principle. Well, I mean, I mean, really tip, I mean, I've, been pretty close friends with several people who've gone to theological seminaries, and they, you know, the, the deconstruction and postmodernism and their their sense of literal faith is just kind of self destructed. And they they will say, you know, I just can't. I mean, I just don't have a literal belief anymore in the Savior. I mean, I think that this person called Jesus probably lived, and we have some, you know books about him that were written long after he died. And, and, and so I just try to um, uh, take people to the place I went is down to how they can feel about it spiritually. Forget the, forget the literal story, but think of the principles and think of the, uh, the divine nature of the principles that are taught. So give me a couple of those principles. For instance, that you can be open to the Spirit and you can receive inspiration and you can have intuitions that are deeper than your, than your thinking mind and that those things tend to occur when you are aligning yourselves with gospel principles and, and to the extent that you do, do have faith in the Savior, you actually find all of that accelerates. Now what that means and who the Savior literally is maybe isn't answered, but you can be tied to, uh, and the interesting thing is, is that if you talk to very conservative, down-the-line, black-and-white Mormons, and you move into, you know, my experience is that mature Mormon people who have stayed close to the gospel and, and have a prayer life and a spiritual life, you can talk to them in terms of their experience outside of doctrinal blacks and whites, that are just so close and identical to what people who are conceptually moving what they feel is beyond some literalisms. And you can make, you can make that, that deeper spiritual common denominator and that revelatory reality, uh, in a person's life, such a, a, a binding possibility for people who doctrinally are beginning to think very differently, maybe in terms of their literal beliefs or what they accept about certain church leaders or whatnot. And the key thing is, by finding those commonalities, it creates the possibility of trust, which creates an environment for a possibility of acceptance of difference on both sides and less of a knee-jerk reaction of, I can't stand it here any, any longer, I'm being suffocated by this Mormon culture or whatever. Uh, uh, to the people who look at somebody who's kind of asking the wrong kinds of questions of being automatically having a problem or somehow they must have sinned to realizing, oh, so. Uh, I am loving this. I just have to say this. Um, this is so, this is such a great idea. So I just want to, again, make sure I'm, I'm understanding correctly. So someone comes in and they have this perception that if you don't believe literally, you can't 
really have an experience, a profound experience with, say, the Savior. You don't believe in a literal Christ, a divine Christ, and that negates somehow um, a profound experience. So some people would think, oh, if you don't believe, then you are less spiritual. Or other people would think, you know, I don't believe and therefore I don't have faith. And what you're saying is that the the spiritual experience and the connection to Christ through faith is not connected to literal belief. It's connected to practice and ser- searching and and just kind of a, a way of living. Is that is that right? Well, I'm saying that in part. I'm not trying to say that uh, that there isn't necessarily a, a literal savior and whatnot. But but what I am saying is. A crisis in faith around that literalness does not necessarily mean that you can't have spiritual experiences and you might build your faith more powerfully than you ever have before by having the courage to uh, uh, be in a, in, a, in a prayerful mode, in a meditative mode, to be open to inspiration to somebody that you might have be thinking about differently. And, the, and those experiences and the guidance that you can get are just can be just as powerful. Okay, so um, that that is really interesting to me because it it speaks to this idea of we speak with I knows. Um, you know, we know a lot of things, right? And and how does that language fit in to this? I you know to what we're talking about. Well, I think it's huge in the sense that we're taught. The, the 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 fruits of saying that I know will build your testimony, but when you get to the point where all of a sudden there are cracks in that, uh, and all of a sudden I don't know a lot of things, I mean it's a huge problem. Uh, but I think if adequately communicated about, it creates a, a marvelous opportunity to say, now I'm actually free to be open to the fullness of truth, and I and I, and I want to not know, so that I can be exposed to even greater truth. Uh, and that's and just saying that that simply is would might be really offensive to a person of deep faith who's always said I know, but if said in an appropriate way, I, I, I because I've experienced it. I have, I've been in this laboratory for years in this uh, gospel principles class. You you can open people up to that and create connections that otherwise, there people on both sides see there's this vast chasm that they can never connect. You know, and with a lot of people, a huge sadness that the that all the the goodness and spirit that they feel in the gospel, they have to walk away from because they're they they can't hold on to the, their beliefs in the same way as they used to. Have you seen that that bridge? Have you have you watched it form between people who have doubted and people who haven't? I mean, have you seen this practice in play at church? Well, I've never. Well, I've seen it more on a one-on-one basis over the years, and I try to be a facilitator of that, but I have never been in a formal setting where our goal is to do that, which would be, you know, which would be an interesting thing to try to do. Yeah, it would be a wonderful thing. But you have seen individuals achieve that between, like, individual relationships between people. Oh, I have. But I feel like I'm just a beginner in learning uh, learning about that. But I believe strongly in it that there are all sorts of possibilities for bridges and healing and connecting and holding on to one another in ways that we are just beginning to imagine. So 
let's talk a little bit about um, Mormonism offers um, kind of this Eastern um, undercurrent that um, that we might not recognize because we don't have that language. But how do you recognize like Eastern meditative practices within Mormon doctrine? Well, I mean, one example is this, you know, my practice, which I call polarity practice. And, you know, we, we traditionally think of there's an opposition in all things as there's good and evil. Uh, you know, but in Mosiah, um, I'm forgetting the exact, the exact verse is that, um, you know, an even more profound concept, everything is a compound in one is it doesn't mean and what that means is it's to, to, to see dark, you've got to be able to see light. To understand desire, you've got to be able to understand aversion. And, uh, and then to even more deeply understand that it isn't just a balancing. It isn't a balancing of virtues. That's, to a certain extent, that's helpful to understand. But there's a deeper unity underneath that. Um, so that if they're, they're united, that would be the compound. Yeah, that would be a compound. Every, everything that manifests is a compound in, in one. Otherwise, we couldn't grasp it. It wouldn't work. And that's so deep and that's so profound, and it's so much at the center of the gospel and, and found most powerfully in that, one, in that one scripture particularly. And that's, you know, that's very Eastern. I mean, that's, that's Taoism. Everything is a yin and a yang. And uh, it's found very powerfully in, in the Vedantic in the Vedantic tradition, the Hindu tradition as well. And the interesting thing too is that uh, the concept of a, a greater whole of bringing the yin and the yang together, the, the male and the female principle, creating a greater unity. Uh, we understand that more powerfully than any Western tradition. But even beyond that, and this is where it's implicit and not uh, said so explicitly, is anything that is, is powerful outside of you is also powerful inside of you. And so, for instance, we learn that the priesthood can only be exercised through meekness, gentleness, and long-suffering, which are really feminine qualities. And so if you look at it that way, a, uh, and it's not a neutering principle where you just, the, the male and the female come together and then there's just sort of a neutered situation there. But uh, but the, the male priesthood holder can reach the greater power of his own maleness uh, and masculinity by integrating the feminine and the priesthood doesn't even work unless he's done that. So we understand that without talking about it that way, but the opposite principle I believe is also true. That a mature, and I, and I think it's not talked about, but it happens. Uh, ma ma mature Mormon women develop this deep capacity of agency which is sort of a male quality rather than communion, of agency and capacity and organization. Everybody acknowledges the women run the ward kind of thing. It's that they, they become more powerful and more deeply feminine and more reach their divine potential as priestesses and goddesses eternally by having integrated the male principle. Now, you're not going to find that taught anywhere, but I think it's inherent and... Um, and I see it happening, and it's powerful, and I don't see any other Western tradition that even touches it. And where, and where it's taught in the East, it's taught in very uh, unenlightened ways. So give me an example of an unenlightened way that it's taught. Well, uh, 
they they say that the um, the bringing of the male and the female principle together is most pronounced in in Tibetan Buddhism and in some of the Vedantic traditions and this Kashmir Shaivism, which is a blend of of Buddhism and and the Vedantic tradition, and they'll develop practices of uh, tantric practices of sexual religious practices uh, that are uh, tend to be very male oriented and very stilted and very not having anything to do with relationship or the divinity of relationship. They get the principle, but they just don't understand the beauty of the man and the woman coming together or the maybe they understand better how you internalize both poles within yourself. Uh, but but not with the depth and richness of context that the restored gospel offers. And so to me, I mean, it's just a great example where we have so much to offer all those we're trying to talk to about the church, this Eastern wisdom that, you know, we haven't even opened ourselves up to yet to understanding that we can share deeply with some of those kinds of perspectives. So we have so much potential in terms of really capitalizing on on these fundamental eastern traditions and and we're actually doing a good job of it without even realizing is that what you're saying yeah i think (laughs) and i think we're just and 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 i and i have such great faith in the future of the church because i think our church leaders really do believe in openness and growth and openness to revelation and over time things our leaders will be prepared to, to share things with our leader with our with our members. I mean, I remember when I was a bishop twenty years ago, what the positions were on on homosexuality have evolved incredibly. It's it's like it's not even the same church in terms of what how we had to counsel and how that was characterized. And I think things just we it, uh, and and plus my great frustration with blacks and the priest blacks and the priesthood. Uh, if you have a deep enough testimony and can hang on to the things that are most deeply important, you somehow can say, I can live with some things because I know that the depth and the truth and the the joy is here. And, um, uh, and I'll have faith that some things will work themselves out. I, this is such a hopeful perspective. And I, especially coming from a perspective where sometimes you do get so discouraged, but maybe what you're suggesting is we're taking for granted that, um, and going back to what you said at the beginning of the podcast, that people can experience kind of these transcendent spiritual experiences. They can, they can have, um, you know, other faith traditions but they don't actually necessarily correlate to a way of living. And what you're saying is that as LDS people, we are really striving to do both and we're progressing. Right. And I, and it was so interesting being with father Thomas Keating and, you know, Ram Das. the, I mean, I, I could name all of these people in Eastern Western traditions are very prominent. And they would all say, that the meditative aspect of their tradition is the periphery of their tradition. It's never at the center. And I would say, well, our meditative tradition isn't very well developed yet completely, but it's absolutely at the center of our tradition. Everybody is challenged to develop a, you know, a deep meditative contemplative relationship. And you know, we have the actual commandment, you know, of, of be one with me as 
I am one with the Father, that we may be one. That's a classic, deep, and, and every Latter-day Saint is asked to develop their own spiritual depth and ultimately will have lots of practices uh, that will, will help us get there a, a little bit more than we have right now. But the principles are there and people live them. And, um, and we have so much to share in that regard, and yet we're barely even conscious of our own power and strength to some extent, I think. Yeah, this is such a this is such a hopeful discussion for me. So now I want to really kind of tie that into um, how you how you personally, but also how we as Latter Day Saints can approach Christ, thinking in terms of um, these Eastern practices and these Western practices, and and our um, our need to kind of move into this um, maybe more mature way of a viewing faith where you don't have to believe necessarily everything literally you can, but that it's, it's, it's something different than that. It's, it's having faith in Christ despite, you know, the actual belief that you may or may not have. Do, do you know what I'm no, trying exa- to say? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And I think part of the uh, solution is that, um, um, petitionary prayer and highly verbal prayer is great. But maybe, get, get, to explain to me what petitionary prayer and verbal prayer would that just be like me yeah. going through the normal Mormon? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Please. 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 And you just talk. And but sometimes maybe we ought to just listen. Maybe we ought to just sit and feel. And maybe part of it should be: um, Do I have enough courage to completely submit myself to God? To absolutely have nothing between me and absolutely submit myself and have a, an actual practice of loving God with all of my heart, my mind, and strength, not in a verbal way, but in a, in a soulful, emotional way, and have the courage to do that and have the courage to receive back the, the flood of, through His grace, of, of unconditional love and embrace and the power of uh, the Spirit the experience of that. And sometimes we're so busy talking, we don't allow ourselves to actually fully submit ourselves to allow our wills to be substituted for a divine will. And however you think about that, who is Christ, what does he look like, or how tall is he, or or whatever, but just to simply in a purely spiritual way uh, be experiential about it, beyond the verbal, not in the substitute for the verbal, uh, but to have that uh, deep, uh, compassionate communion resulting in an in a unbelievably powerful union and, and to have the courage to allow my own will not to be there anymore. Um, I mean, I'm not saying anything that people don't understand other than actually having a, a practice that emphasizes that. And that doesn't have to be verbal at all. It can be, you know, deeply emotional and spiritual. And, you know, so I've developed some, you know, uh, meditative prayer patterns to help myself do that. And it's been helpful to some others. Can you articulate those patterns at all? Well, um, um, we do have this polarity of agency and communion. And it's important to maintain your agency, not to be 
have the trust in somebody else to completely become molded into them. But the still point for that is complete trust. And the only person that you can have complete trust in is, is the divine, is the Father or the, or the Savior. So if you, can, if you can move into that place of complete trust and then to completely submit yourself, we want to be in control, but lose all control and just completely submit by submitting myself. And then in that context, in a complete state of submission, uh, in every way that I can, I extend all of my love with all my might heart, mind, and strength to my Father, uh, you know, in the name of my Savior. Um, the amazing thing is, is when you reach the limit of your capacity in that regard, what comes back at you is so incredibly magnificent and powerful and unlimited, in my experience, that my normal prayer, as I've learned it in the church, hadn't opened me up to those kinds of deeper experiences. And so um, uh, and so there is kind of a pattern of being in a still place and a trusting place and then extending my love and, ex and then receiving that love, being conscious of that, what's flowed into me is his will and his being. Um, it's a simple little pattern. I have, you know, I have it kind of worked out. Not, not that any of these formulas, and there is something about not trying to be formulaic, but some basic principles of giving yourself the opportunity to experience in a meditative, experiential way. But it takes greater courage because you have to be willing to say, okay, I'm all here, and uh, I'm, I'm going to allow myself to have no barriers for me whatsoever and to actually be open to what it is you want to tell me with no holes barred. And and then to understand that the glory of the gospel of repentance is is uh, is the gospel of growth. It uh, will always will always come up short, but we're given guidance as to how to be even more refined in our awareness of that. And uh, but if we can come from a place of trust and contentment and sufficiency, which we can. And another meditative thing is Eastern thing is we can be, in this moment we can be perfect through His grace. We can come from a place of non-deficiency and uh, a, a courageous willingness to actually drop our ego and drop our separateness and say, okay, I'm yours. And um, so, I mean, I'm just talking about being more explicit in that. I think we all understand that at some level and try to make that of a part of our lives, but to have a practice which... Uh, uh, relies on that kind of Eastern sensibility of being completely passive, in a sense, uh, to be willing to open ourselves up and be filled. Have you personally changed since you have been involved in these practices? Like, do you have behaviors that you can look back in the 10, in the last, you know, however many years, is it been 10, 10 to 15 years? Yeah, 15 years. That you can say that you have personally evolved and changed? Yeah, I think I have. And the interesting thing for me is that this non-dual experience isn't the end-all and be-all. I mean, it's an experience, and it's worth having. And it's a deeply grounding spiritual place to be. But uh, what I f find is... You know the God, the basic gospel principles in terms of how we live our life and love being at the center of our life 
and Christ being at the center of our life works. And uh, by by having a practice where I try to be more explicit experientially and meditatively, uh, has, I think, helped me grow more than I otherwise would have. I mean, I'm, hopefully that's what our life is about. We never stop trying to grow, but I, I think I've made more progress than I otherwise would have, or otherwise I wouldn't be sharing it. Would your wife agree? <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> That's always the measure. I have, always have to say to look to my husband when I say, I- I've gotten better, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, he validates yeah. that, right? <laughs> but I mean, you know, sh- sh- she's the one who can see where I, where I have a long way to go. <laughs> <laughs> Does she and do it's, the- it's healthy that she reminds me of that. Does she, um, do, just out of curiosity, we haven't really addressed, you know, your personal relationships and your family, but um, how does your wife feel about your meditative practices? Does she do it with you? What is her approach? And Well, I mean, she's a very uh, faithful Latter-day Saint and uh, ha- had no particular interest in Eastern stuff. So she was pretty alarmed when I started spending lots, lots of time at the Zen Center and and you know, and even all of the meditation stuff, and yet, uh, you know, although she doesn't uh, share in a deep meditative practice, you know, we've picked up on a lot of things together and grown together, and and she's you know happy to see me doing what I'm doing, and and uh, you know has has integrated some elements, I think. But the nice thing about it is, you know, it doesn't matter. I mean, because we're we're one deeply in so many ways, and she hasn't picked up deeply on these particular practices, but so what? Um, this has been wonderful, and I'm I'm so excited that I got to sit with you for this last hour and a half and, and um, you know, be presented with so many good thoughts and encouraging thoughts. Um, I want to thank you for sitting with me tonight, and I uh, thank you for our listeners as well. Um, I'd like to encourage any of you who are interested to um, email John and he will put you on his email list for his workshops. And um, if you're interested in, in um, learning more about his uh, integral polarity practice and, um, and investigating some of the meditative styles that, um, that he teaches. And also um, we'll provide a phone number so that you can that you can reach him directly if you are interested in in um, in investigating that more fully. Um, and thank you again. I've I've really enjoyed this. Well, thank you, Sarah. It's been a, a nice opportunity to talk with you. Thanks so much. Um, this is a thoughtful faith, and you've been um, listening to John Kessler and Sarah Colette. Come the fount of every blessing to my heart. Thank you for joining us today on A Thoughtful Faith. To discuss this podcast, check us out at athoughtfulfaith.org. The music from this podcast was generously donated by Lisa Frazier. Hear more from her at lisafrazier.com. Bye.
See you.